Hey folks, uh, I'm going to hit you pretty hard today with ads and mentions and links and just ways to funnel money like from you towards me. Because um, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can just go buy stuff and then people pay me. Like you go buy D-cell batteries at uh, Amazon and I'm going to get like 28 cents. There's an Amazon store link on my website. That's on the resources tab. Basically, what that is is a scam. It's just um, links to Amazon, and then, like, if you buy something, diapers, then I get a percentage of that purchase. So there's, it's not really a resources link. It's a store. It's it's for me, is what it is. But if you're spendy, go spendy there. So I'll hit you three or four times with this. Um, because I haven't in a long time. Audible.com, um, they make audiobooks. They've got a few dozen or more. You can check them out uh, for the offer from this show. It's audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento. And I think currently it's a 30-day free trial. Welcome to Doc Fermento Discovers the World, episode 31 with... Balin Linekin. I'll read you Balin's bio that I found over at Reason.com. He's a contributor there. Balin Linekin is a lawyer and the executive director of Keep Food Legal, a nonprofit that promotes culinary freedom, the idea that people should be free to make and consume whatever comestibles they prefer. Great bio, short and sweet, and a great explanation of Balin's work and the work of his organization, Keep Food Legal. That's it for this intro. Enjoy the show. Hello, is this Balin? Uh, I think it is. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, really good. Okay, cool. Hey, you know, um, I found out about you just through a tweet um, that Rob Wolf sent out. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, he, are you familiar with him? Yeah, I mean, I haven't uh, read his, uh, I don't know if he has more than one book, but I haven't read his okay. book I'm aware of, but I, I know that he's uh, a well-known uh, paleo uh, right, right. and practitioner. Yeah, and so he um, linked to an article that you posted on Reason.com, mm-hmm. Fight for Your Right to Go Paleo. So, right. of course, that got my attention just because of the paleo word. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more to it. it it's not just some um, paleo shenanigans. There's, it's, it's speaking about a whole larger problem. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what, what drew me to write the article, it, it, paleo is pretty much the vehicle for telling the story I wanted to tell um, in 1,200 words or so, uh, which is that the government has for a long time, too long, uh, skewed our food choices, and it's done so with subsidies, and it's done so with the food pyramid, and it's done so with uh, dietitian uh, licensing, and, and a whole host of different uh, factors that really go into the end product, which is what we eat. Right, that's really good. I like your perspective. You're you're not coming from a paleo background. You're coming from a legal background. You're um, a lawyer, and. Right. You have an organization. 
Keep Food Legal at keepfoodlegal.org. How did you get this started, and what was the inspiration for that? Um, a variety of factors. I've always been interested in uh, economic and civil liberties, and I like to cook. I like to eat. Um, and so at some point in law school, I was thinking, you know, I, I knew going into law school that I didn't want to work for a big firm. I didn't want to work for the government. And even the idea of sort of small firm practice didn't really uh, appeal to me much. Uh, but having worked in nonprofits uh, before, I thought, you know, I could start my own and really uh, focus on an issue that I think unites people really across uh, ideological and, and political boundaries. Um, and that's food, I think, more than any other issue. Yeah, so how does the nonprofit angle work? You have to be nonpartisan, correct? Um, actually, not necessarily, okay. although we, we are uh, nonpartisan. But um, we're a 501c4, although we're launching a C3 uh, reasonably soon. So a C4 can be a partisan organization. It can lobby. Um, it can take stands on issues and endorse candidates and things like that. Um, when I uh, drafted our Articles of Incorporation, uh, and the board signed on to it, I included in there that we could not endorse uh, any candidate for political office, even though I think we you know, legitimately could uh, as a C4. I wanted to prohibit us from doing so, so that we could, um, you know, even though we're permitted to lobby, uh, the, that we, we really stay out of the sort of uh, political hmm. sphere as much as possible. Yeah, I can see a, <clears throat> a very positive angle there, is that no one can hold it against you. If you pick the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, um, <laughs> that's they, true. People change. People may not be what they appear to be. Um, so I, I, I kind of like the approach. It just seems a little more libertarian as far as you're not now stuck between two candidates on every single issue or, or front or law, right? It's true. I mean, we certainly do appeal to libertarians, uh, uh, broadly, but I think that um, I mean we're not. Uh, you know, people have referred to us as a libertarian organization. We're not. Um, we you know we have a well-known libertarian on our board, but we also have people who, frankly, whose political persuasion I have never asked and and don't know uh, serving on the board and as members, and even have one supporter who. Uh, having met and had a beer with him and spoken with him when I was out in San Francisco, identified himself as a communist. And you know what? Mm -hmm. That's great. That's, uh, you know, he wants, uh, he advocates for food freedom. And uh, that's, that's what matters most. Hmm. It'd be interesting to talk to that person because I, I, I can't see a communist um, actually supporting food freedom because um, I think f uh, food freedom, we need to honor um, personal property rights and the rights of farmers. And um, I think that a community communist style effort would prohibit that. But that's just me taking this down a rat hole. But um, <laughs> that's yeah, I, 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 we we certainly discussed that. And his uh, uh, he is a forager and um, uh, you know, takes things from the ocean and from the land and, and often from public property. So I think, um, you know, that in that uh, conceptual framework, it works. You know, if you believe sure. in public property, then, uh, you know, taking things from that property, uh, you know, that, that framework works for him. Yeah, I mean, at its core, it is the earth. It's the earth's property. <laughs> Everything else we just made up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a legitimate way to look at it. 
So um, how how do you fund the organization? This is through private donations or the board themselves, or how does that work? We're entirely member-funded at this point, and uh, so that means that we're exceptionally small and, um, you know, in need of, uh, desperately in need of funding. Um, so that's uh, that's been really the biggest challenge over the past year or so is uh, getting funding, and I think some of our work in, in launching the C3, um, which is a, a different strand of nonprofit that largely can't lobby um, and that is uh, donations to such groups as you know, religious organizations or other uh, foundations and charities are tax deductible. Um, so at that point, we'll hopefully appeal more to larger donors who um, might be looking for a tax break, uh, to grant-making foundations, to, uh, to others, uh, you know, large individual donors. Um, so that's, that's our sort of model going forward. Uh, but we've been incredibly successful in every way except fundraising to this point. <laughs> and so what happens when you do get the funding you need? Um, what are the efforts that you do? Are you just educating the public? Are you educating Congress? Or what, what, other, what, what is the scope of work that you actually do? Um, we have a few different uh, prongs. Uh, I've worked very little in Congress uh, and really only when uh, people on the Hill have contacted me and uh, asked a question, you know, what's your opinion on this issue? You know, how can we design this bill to do X, Y, and Z? Um, I haven't really sought out any legislators to uh, to push them. I, it's the sort of sausage making. It doesn't really appeal to me all that much. Um <laughs> But uh, it's a foul business, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It's uh, you know you uh, it's it's not a joke that you know you really can't take enough showers when you live in D.C. Um, but we largely, I think, uh, operate in certainly in terms of outreach, whether it's uh, you know in social media on uh, the airwaves uh, in podcasts like this, uh, um, sort of communications and um, and other outreach to other groups. We do a lot of research. Um, I've written several uh, research articles in addition to other publications. Um, I have a the column in, in Reason that you read is part of a series of weekly columns I've been doing for the last uh, three, four months uh, in addition to previous articles I'd written uh, both for the print magazine and online. Uh, and so those are sort of the uh, bulk of our, our work, uh, yeah. research, publication, outreach, education, and you know, though we're free to lobby, that's not really something that, uh, that we do for the most part. I was in, um, I was in New York City yesterday uh, to talk about the proposed soda ban uh, before the hmm. Department of uh, Health there. I'm not sure that's uh, necessarily considered lobbying, but uh, that's probably about as close as we would get. Okay. What did you have to say to them about this? Um, I was shaking my fist at them in my head. <laughs> um, and uh, I, we submitted some, some written comments. Uh, and so my oral comments largely riffed on them. But uh, I argued that the science behind the ban uh, was not so good, uh, to put it mildly, um, and uh, before your you know, paleo uh, audience members uh, are up in arms, I 
have no opinion. Uh, you know, we're not a nutrition organization, so I'm not uh, urging anyone to go out and drink soda. Um, but the science uh, that they actually cited to support their premises uh, behind the ban was completely uh, inadequate. And frankly, the, the conclusion of the one research article that they cited to to support their proposition that soda is, is a huge menace actually concluded that the rise in obesity over the last 25 years was largely due to technology. And as I say that, my phone beeps to tell me I have an email. Um, <laughs> uh, so I wrote in, in our comments, and I said this out loud, that uh, you know, the, um, that, that report could easily have been used to, uh, you know, as a, a means to ban public transportation or iPods or mm-hmm. televisions. Um, so. Yeah, it, 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 I don't think it matters, the science. To, this is my opinion. The, the science would be meaningless, whatever their study determined. It's whether or not they have the right to legislate to create, basically, to social engineer, mm-hmm. whether or not they even have the right. Like like you said, even coming from a paleo um, template or background or whatever, it, it isn't even important to you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a soda or a steak. They... They they just don't have the right to create the the law, right? Yeah, that was um, out of uh, we had um, I think five points, and that was the the third point was um, not the one I wanted to lead with, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> which was which was food freedom, um, okay. and a lot of my uh, my research, uh, I'm you know sort of stuck in the present, talking about things like the soda ban and uh, the foie gras ban in California and advocating for the right to uh, sell and consume raw milk. Um, but a lot of my research focuses on uh, colonial-era America up to, say, 1800, uh, and sort of the, the scene in, uh, in food at that point, you know, what sort of laws and regulations were in place, uh, how exactly did the uh, British end up uh, angering the Americans so much that the Americans kicked them out. And, and really, my, my argument... Um, and I think it's a good one. I think it's solid. Is that really all of these arguments, these contestations started over food? And you can actually go back to uh, various, uh, you can go back to the Declaration of Independence and to earlier documents. You can look at the Bill of Rights, and specific amendments in the Bill of Rights uh, relate directly to food. And the Declaration of Independence mentions the fact that the British were eating the, eating the food of American colonists. Um, you know, food is, uh, very much the issue that, uh, helped spur the American revolution and independence. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, I had, I never had no idea or would have never even thought of that. I can't wait to read more on that. Do you have a piece, um, available right now specifically? Yeah, I've, um, I, uh, I have one article that's been published in the uh, Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, uh, which is available at the Keep Food Legal website in PDF form, um, and it's called Tavern Talk and the Origins of the Assembly Clause, and in that I trace the, as the article title suggests, the First Amendment's Assembly Clause, which says essentially that people have a right to assemble peaceably uh, back to the sort of assembly that took place in colonial American taverns amongst, you know, your, your well-known colonists, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, etc. Um, and also just everyday colonists. This is where ideas, uh, were sort of hashed out and news was shared and, 
what started off as grumblings about the British really formed into the sort of machinations of revolution in these colonial American taverns. That's awesome. What do you think the the American men uh, that, that were talking about food angle, what, what were they talking about in the taverns? Uh, I mean, if you look at the British acts, and I mentioned this, uh, and I, I saw the uh, Department of Health uh, sort of scowl at me when I mentioned this yesterday in New York City, um, they were talking about things like the Sugar Act, you know, which has the word sugar in it because it was an act about sugar. Um, that was the first, in 1764, the first sort of terrible British act uh, that was forced upon the colonists. And if you read any text worth its salt, uh, no pun intended, uh, the food reference, um, you'll see that the colonists were pretty happy as British subjects up until 1763. And in 1764 with the Sugar Act, that all changed. Um, and so I compared this uh, soda uh, ban to the Sugar Act, uh, the, the soda ban being something that's uh, being implemented by an unelected board of uh, public health uh, professionals in New York City. You know, the taxation without representation complaint of the Americans was first raised with the Sugar Act. Um, and essentially, this proposal in New York City is a tax, uh, uh, you know, in a, a different sort of way, but it's a tax on uh, people who want to drink soda. So they were, uh, I don't think they were pleased that I compared uh, their act to the Sugar Act, but. Uh, <laughs> That's good. I, I like the angle, using a little bit of a, some excellent history to prove it, to make a point. Yeah. yeah Especially that... from the legal perspective as well, because. Um, I guess that's what all law is built upon is um, the history of law. Yeah, we're not supposed to make it up as we go along to whatever fits our, you know, modern day beliefs. Right. It's, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, I guess the debate is often between people who think that we have a quote living constitution uh, and I don't subscribe to that. Um, or people who think that, you know, the constitution means what it says and uh, it's, it's malleable, but only through the process of amending that document. And I mean, I think I'm, I'm not uh, perhaps as strict as, as other people. I'm not an anarchist by any stretch. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that say the public health community has a legitimate role to play. Um, I don't think that all regulation is evil. Uh, but I think that going back to the constitution and sort of looking to see, you know, what is enumerated and authorized uh, as far as powers of government go. And then, you know, obviously the more important thing to me is uh, our rights and whether food laws infringe upon those rights. Mm -hmm. And how did you recently then, let's go back to that paleo piece. Sure. How did that catch your eye? What was going on there and what inspired that article? Um. Well, I, uh, there's the uh, Ancestral Health Symposium that's coming up at uh, Harvard Law School in, uh, well, I guess about a couple weeks from today mm -hmm. it starts. Um, or I shouldn't say a couple weeks from today, but uh, whenever you post this podcast. Right, right. It's, um, what is it, August 2012? Right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in August 2012, the uh, Ancestral Health Symposium. Uh, and I had uh, spoken... Um, last fall, I guess, uh, to the 
a grouping of the Harvard uh, Food Law Society and their Federalist Society, uh, Health Law Society, and I think the, uh, I don't know, the Law School Republicans, um, sort of a joint meeting of theirs, which is a, I, I love that mix. I mean, that, hmm. that pretty much in, encapsulates uh, what we're trying to do at Keep Food Legal is to appeal to people from a, a broad swath of uh, society. Um, and so I'd met some of the, uh, the folks there, and uh, I'd been working with them on a project, which we're actually about to, uh, I can't really reveal it at this point, but uh, we took a look at some, or asked them to take uh, a look at some farmer's market regulations around the country, and they're going to be uh, publishing a report in which we were the, the client, uh, and that'll be coming out very soon. Um, so I've had a, a good working re- relationship with a woman who teaches there and who runs their food uh, law and policy clinic, um, smart, talented lawyer. Uh, and so uh, one of the students at Harvard who just, uh, just graduated from the law school there is helping to organize the Ancestral Health Symposium. And he had asked us, uh, along with another uh, uh, law school professor, um, if we would be interested in uh, having a sort of panel discussion, I think the interest there is in sort of branching out beyond just uh, discussions of the paleo diet and you know how to sort of uh, live within that. And I've never been to an AHS uh, symposium, so I don't know exactly what goes on. Um, but I think that there was an interest in involving more of a discussion of law and policy and how that might uh, you know impact. Uh, paleo practice and so working together with the uh, the other two people on the panel we came up with the idea of uh, this uh, title seeds of discontent as the sort of uh, overarching theme my understanding is that uh, um, the general paleo approach is to you know eat things that eat seeds rather than to eat the seeds yourself <laughs> That's a um, decent way of, of saying it yeah mm-hmm. um, and so it wasn't really that difficult to come up with uh, at that point, you know, a set of regulations at the local, state, and federal level that uh, discourage people from uh, practicing a paleo diet, you know, encourage them to practice other diets. And I mean, I don't think any of us are paleo necessarily who are on the panel. Um, but I mean, to me, it stands for a larger proposition uh, right. we talked mm-hmm. about earlier, which is just that, you know, the government, when it picks winners and losers, whether that's in business or, um, uh, you know, in terms of diet, uh, it, it usually futzes things up in a big way. And, uh, you know, we... From the diet to the farm to the industry to whatever, you name it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's really, it's sad um, because uh, it always involves, uh, you know, still more fixes. It's, you know, the government breaks something and then they have to try to rebuild it instead of just letting the people rebuild it and just, you know, acknowledging right. their, their right. shortcomings. Yeah, that's why I always would like to reinforce the idea that don't be involved in this fight just because the government is proposing a diet or um, supplementing an industry or, an, or a product that you don't agree with, right? Because then if, if suddenly they advocate your diet, Mm-hmm. You'll, you would be more likely to, you know, give them the power, <laughs> you know, to, to, to build the food pyramid that agrees that you agree with. Right. And I like your approach. It's it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter if the food pyramid's upside down or downside up or however you want to look at it. It's it's not their job and they should not be doing this, right? Am, am I overstepping by saying that? I mean, I I think it, that the I don't think you're overstepping. I mean, you can um, obviously, um, yeah. Uh, I don't I don't think you necessarily mischaracterize me, but I respect that you know that's the way you're looking at it. Um, and I think that's not too far from how how I'm looking at it. I mean, I do think the government has a role in providing information, um, but you know when it's going to be biased uh, in favor of one particular practice yeah. and regulations they, to mm-hmm. support that, then it, it it's a failure. But to say that you know there are, are many diets out there, and you know some of them may be terrible and some of them may be good, but you know here are the resources. I mean, we also have the internet. Um, and there are generally some resources on there that are free and easy to uh, to look over, and we can certainly do that ourselves. Yeah, and then the problem is, you mentioned in that Paleo article about um, Steve Cooksey. Mm-hmm. He was a, right. um, he ran a just ran a personal blog telling yeah. his story, and collected stories of um, other. Uh, he was a diet, is or was a diabetic, I think, yeah. and just told his story of uh, his food way change results anecdotes other people's anecdotes and he nearly got shut down or did uh, i'm not really that clear on the exact story but you write about it in there so th- that's kind of scary um yeah that's uh i mean you know we have a first amendment for a reason um and uh you know he's not telling people uh, how to build an airplane and you know giving you know false information that, you know, intending for people to crash. Um, he's saying, here's my experience with a particular diet and these are the benefits I got out of it. And if you are interested in doing that, I can tell you how, I mean, to me, that's, uh, that's the most basic. I mean, people have compared him to dear Abby and, you know, just because dear Abby was a newspaper columnist, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's, it's a, a, a basic freedom that we all have as Americans to enter the sort of marketplace of ideas and, you know, hash out things. And it doesn't mean that everyone in there is right. Of course, they're not. But it's absolutely something that's up to the individual to make these decisions, you know, which sort of information you want to receive and, and which of that information you, you choose to trust. Yeah, it's just kind of shocking when they come after an individual and tell him that he's you simply cannot say certain words. <laughs> it's not yes. like it was a, a vulgarity issue or against community standards or several other things I don't even agree with, but it, it it's from it's from a, a field so afar and bizarre. I mean, it, this is um, a private organization, I believe, a dietetics association or something that it's... is actually craft helping state governments craft their licensing and oversight of the of the dietetic world right yeah it's um i i I mean there are lots of different layers but my understanding is that the state uh associations are established to make sure that um state policies uh toe the line of the federal government uh mostly i think the you know usda and uh hhs you know, to make sure that they're dispensing advice that is acceptable and mainstream, and I'm doing finger quotes when I say this, um, 
and it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I've met uh, dietitians who do not tow the you know sort of conventional government line, and they're at risk. I mean, their livelihoods at risk. It's uh, it's disturbing that uh, in the same way that you know, if the government cracks down on people who practice alternative medicine, I mean, it's one thing to be a quack and to harm people, but with no evidence of harm whatsoever. Uh, I don't understand how, you know, Mark Bittman from the New York Times can say, as he did today, you know, here's another reason why you shouldn't drink milk. And this, you know, small blogger from North Carolina is being shut down by the, you know, dietitian uh, cabal uh, in the state. It's, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about a, a piece you recently wrote? Uh, I haven't had a chance to check out yet, or, or this whole idea, it, the localization of food law and policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's sort of a work in progress. I actually just got off a phone call talking about that. It's um, uh, Emily Broadlieb from uh, from Harvard, who's person I referred to earlier, uh, and I have uh, happened upon this notion uh, just from uh, I think it grew out of a um, a seminar or a, a symposium rather uh, where we were on a panel last fall in New Orleans, and the panel centered around the idea that uh, in law schools, the teaching of food law has always been about the FDA. So there's a long list, and I don't know if you look through the the slides, um, I think that I posted uh, in that uh, link on, uh, on the Keep no, Food. I haven't seen it yet, no. Um, well, there's a an overly long list of things that uh, you would never, <laughs> never talk about uh, in a typical food law class in law school. And it, actually those classes are called food and drug law, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, but things like, I mean, things that are, that we've talked about here, uh, none of those things would ever come up in a food law class. Uh, other things, obesity, local food. Um, I mean, it's a long list of things that are frankly, quite stunning that you would just never talk about in law school food law classes. Um, and the things you do talk about really are just, you know, hey, here's the FDA code, and it talks about food, it talks about drugs, it talks about medical devices, and a couple of other things. Um, and let's look at how federal cases have been decided that pertain to these areas, and that is the limit of a food and drug law class. Um, and that was really the case up until about the turn of the last century, around the time that uh, we're positing, around the time that people became more interested in food. Frankly, you know, local food, you know, the birth of the foodie, um, and all those things. Uh, I think really had an impact on the field. You know, people were interested in learning about other federal agencies like the USDA that regulate food that you don't learn about in food law, but also, you know, sustainability, GMOs, animal welfare, these issues that just aren't covered there. I mean, it's uh, this sort of witty saying that law school professors have when they refer to their food and drug law class, you know, oh, we, the FDA regulates 80% of the food we eat. Well, that's fine, but, and, I guess I, I don't doubt that's true, but it also misses 90% of the actual issues that arise out of that regulation. Um, so we're trying to 
look at uh, not just that that trend in in terms of uh, law school teaching, but how uh, law in general is moving from the federal government level when it comes to food to state and local levels, and whether that's you know food policy councils or uh, the food sovereignty uh, amendments that came out of Maine and a whole host of other issues, you know, regulation of farmers' markets. I mean, farmers' markets are booming, and so regulation of them is too. The local and state regulation isn't always necessarily, in my opinion, positive. And and, uh, Emily, my co-author, and I, uh, we have different ideas in some cases about, you know, whether a regulation is a good thing or not. Um, But for the most part, I think we're trying to look at just sort of the objectively you know, there's more regulation happening at the state and local level. Federal government's kind of been left behind there, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And we're trying to sort of come up with a framework to look at that and then talk about the the implications of that change. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a little it's a little bit of a confusing issue for me. It's tough for me to land on this one. Um, I'm typically pro local, you mm-hmm. know, but yep. then. <laughs> local evildoers <laughs> might wield a, a greater power locally. Like, say, your county inspector can walk into farmers markets, wave around, wave his magic um, temperature gun in coolers, and right. shut people down from selling food. Um, I recently at the local news here in Cleveland, they did a hit piece. I'll call it a hit piece okay. on farmers markets. Um, mm-hmm. And that the fact that they were going uninspected mm-hmm. of the eight counties in our surrounding area, I think that four had not been inspected at all the previous year. And um, why well, I was talking to a local chef about this who runs a CSA and his, has his own farm, and he was very upset about this. Um, it was it was really an attack against the vendors the way they presented it. Um, I have a link to it on my website with a little video, the way they did it, the way they approached it. To make us seem like we're all victims and we're all going to die because of these local uninspected foods. When the people shopping at these markets, we're the inspectors. <laughs> you sniff, you smell, you talk to the people selling it, and then that's all the regulation you need. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, it's... um. I, I'm, I may have seen that article. I'm not sure, but if not, I've seen one very, very similar. Yeah, I'm sure this goes uh, on all over the place, right? Yeah, the sort of scare story. There was a similar uh, article, which I was interviewed for, and thankfully was not quoted in um, in the Wall Street Journal's. Uh, I think Speakeasy. It was like a top ten list of reasons, essentially, to be afraid of food trucks. Um, <laughs> and you know, what is food if not something to fear? Um, it's, it's, it's pretty absurd. Um, and I think you, you pretty much, uh, hit the nail on the head when it comes to, uh, you know, that tyranny exists, uh, when it comes to food at the federal level, certainly, but also, you know, can be just as bad, uh, at the state or local level. And a lot of these, uh, you know, crackdowns on people having a, a backyard garden or not coming mm-hmm. from, uh, the federal government, they might, you know, there might be some involvement, but there it's a, you know, someone who lives in your community is visiting your house and ripping out your tomato plants. Yeah. Uh, there's gardens being ripped out of front yards. Maybe not yeah. so much in our country, but in Canada, I seem to always see another instance of this happening. 
Yeah, I, um, I had a piece uh, in in Reason, one of my more recent columns, uh, maybe three weeks ago, uh, which was uh, one of the few uh, headlines I've come up with that they actually decided to use. Um, so I feel like it's worth mentioning because I, I always think my uh, column headlines that I come up with are incredibly witty. And, and yeah, they shelve them and put in their they, own? Yeah, and oh. well, I, I think that's normal practice. Um, okay. But the ones they come up with are always better than mine. Come right so. for us, but we're going to... Yeah, that's kind of weird. Whatever, whatever. Yeah, I, I think actually headline writing is a, uh, sort of the, the Dane of the, uh, the editors, I think, generally. So, uh, I see. I, and I have not uh, you know, written... I have not written for a daily newspaper or anything like that. But I think generally that's, that's sort of the, uh, the rule, if not the practice. Um, <laughs> But my article uh, on the gardens being ripped out was, uh, I say tomato, you say no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, that's great. I'd read that article. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, so I, I urge you to uh, to do so over at the uh, Reason website at some point in the future. But um, Will do, will do. There were plenty of uh, crackdowns uh, from you know middle America to... Uh, Sort of the you know swanker Boston suburb of Newton uh, instances of of local government run amok where you know, it was deemed unacceptable to be growing those terrible vegetables usually in your front yard so right. you know, a neighbor might complain or mm-hmm. you know, it, it runs afoul of some uh, code that no one can remember exactly what it, that code was supposed to uh, <laughs> to do and prevent uh, you know whichever horrors from happening. Yeah, I guess if it's an agreement between you and your homeowners association, that's one thing. Right. But if it's the local government, that's a completely different issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a, a lot of these are tough issues. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, like I was, I've been hanging out at the local farmer's markets more lately. I've got a friend there that roasts coffee, and I've been learning about um, the art of coffee roasting. It's just something I have an interest in. And I just hang out there while he... Uh, he sells his roasted coffee. He makes people coffee, and they always ask him for some cream. And they, and he's, I'm sorry, I, I can't have cream. Well, I have creamer, you know, that fake half and half stuff. It's completely fake. Mm-hmm. And they almost want to pick a fight with him. Like, why don't you have milk or cream? He's like, I can't. It's it's an illegal product. The um, health and safety inspector will not allow him to have milk or cream regardless of whether he has a refrigerator or a cooler or a or what um at the farm market so that people can put it in their coffee and people are incredulous i have seen the reaction on their faces like what are you talking about who said this how how could that be legal you know no milk it's pretty it's, bizarre yeah and i'm sure you know, someone in 1951 was, you know, sickened by some milk that was left out, um, or something like that. Uh, and that's, or there was a coffee shop that complained that they were, you know, the, 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 the milk was competing with them. Uh, and so you had to, you know, sort of handicap them. I, yeah. you know, these, these laws, it's always, some I think yeah, a lot of times, interest. I was going to say a lot of times aren't these laws actually, a major manufacturer, yeah, who's trying to protect something that they sell and upsell it as being a superior food product. Obviously, 
Fake Half and Half is a superior food product because it's shelf-stable. It doesn't sicken people. So it ends up in legislation, you know. This is the safer preferred food because it doesn't rot. Um, you know, for, for me, my perspective, I, I ferment foods. I make krauts and kimchi and other various, mm-hmm. you know, fermented foods. And they're an illegal food product in Ohio. I can make them for me and my family, of course, but I, I can't sell them at all. Um, it's a verboten. <laughs> I can't even bring it to the farmer's market. Yeah, that's... Um... I've can't tell you how many times I've I've seen regulations like that and it just yeah it's nonsense. You've um probably heard of if not read Joel Salatin um the uh, Virginia farmer uh, who's you know beyond organic and who sort of helped uh, spur the grass-fed beef movement in America. Mm-hmm. Um and he talks about how anything that he's allowed to grow in his farm and feed himself and his family or to share with someone else that he should be able to sell. You know, if it's not going to kill someone by sharing it, then there's no rational reason why he can't also sell it. Sure, and sure. I don't I don't think there's really any good argument against that. I mean, there you know, you would breach a different market if you sell something. Fine, but if it's not harmful to share, then it's not harmful to uh yeah, to sell. But anyways, that's yeah, uh, an goes, uphill battle. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to that food sovereignty issue. Mm-hmm. Um, are some Is it some municipalities or is it actual some states who have tried to declare sovereignty? Um, it's not states. Uh, I, I can't picture a state that necessarily would, maybe Vermont, but um, it's at least a couple of towns in Maine. Uh, and I think... Uh, one of them, uh, there's a raw milk farmer there, and if I understand and remember correctly, uh, you know, the town declared its food sovereignty, um, and this raw milk farmer, I think, was selling raw milk, perhaps uh, in violation of uh, state law, and he's being prosecuted. Uh, so the state was not uh, not in cahoots with the uh, uh, the residents of the local towns, uh, and they certainly are not supportive of that. Um, and there are some, you know, the, again, the federal government looms large in that uh, decision because the federal government uh, sort of expects and, and actually compels the states to uh, walk lockstep with many of their edicts when it comes to uh, to food safety. So will any of these food sovereignty say on a local level, will will they ever stick legally? Will they ever achieve any freedom like that, do you think? Um, I think they're more aspirational, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken with other people, and, and I haven't heard uh, really anything different. I mean, I think they're, uh, they're sort of protest uh, bills, amendments, that uh, basically show and register the displeasure of local communities that... The federal government and the states uh, sometimes, but certainly the federal government, uh, are meddling in their food supply by sort of this top-down uh, food safety mechanism. And I mean, they may not have intended the food sovereignty bills, and, and there are other, you know, cottage food laws or another example. Uh, they may not be intended as uh, protest statements, but in reality, uh, that's exactly what they are. And Cottage foods, I think, 
will stick, uh, but food sovereignty, I, I don't uh, see having the same teeth. Yeah. Here in Ohio, we have a cottage food um, provision state and statewide that there's a list of foods that you can sell without inspection. They're home-produced foods, um, it, which is kind of nice. You know, it just says in the law, it just has to have your name and your phone number address, I think. And you can sell certain things. The funny thing is it's they're almost all toxic. <laughs> it's like popcorn balls, candy, jams, jellies, uh, and, and some various other basically garbage. But uh, they do allow coffee, home roasting coffee, though, which uh, I'm very fond of. But <laughs> but it's just kind of funny that they had to say, like, did they had to actually sit in a room and decide what foods go on the list and which ones don't and... To well, hell they, with 10 million, you know, how many people there are in Ohio, millions of people have to live by this decision that somebody made when, I don't even know, a hundred and some years ago or something. It's kind of funny or yeah, sad. I, I'm, I'm sure that they had a dartboard um, and, <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was the popcorn ball section of the dartboard and um, lucky for, for Ohio. Uh, someone had their dart land there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just, I guess um, it, it depends on who had a dog in that fight, which foods got on the list, you know? Some people don't want competitors, so. I guess popcorn balls were safe. No one wanted yeah, to I mean, corner yeah. the market. No industry wanted to corner the popcorn ball market. Yeah, the popcorn ball lobby, uh, I mean, as we all know, is is pretty slight. <laughs> well, this has been a... Very fun, interesting, informative talk, Balin. I really appreciate it. Cool. Well, um, I am really happy that you uh, asked me to be on, Brian, and uh, I've enjoyed myself. So let's give some let's give folks um, links where to go. A lot of people don't go to show notes, so let's just give them some simple things where to find you and what you're up to. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess uh, the easiest way to find uh, me and Keep Food Legal is at uh, www.keepfoodlegal.org. And uh, there you can read many articles uh, I've written uh, for popular press, uh, Reason, Baltimore Sun, Washington Times, on a variety of topics like raw milk and foie gras and food freedom, and then uh, certainly other uh, you know, law review and, and more sort of, uh, you know, lengthier articles uh, that if you're interested in that sort of thing might also appeal to you. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at, uh, at Keep Food Legal. Um, and we have an events page. You can uh, check out uh, where we'll be. As I mentioned, I'll be at the uh, Ancestral Health Symposium on a panel on, uh, I think, Thursday afternoon. And uh, looking forward to that very much. Um, And uh, if you're in New Orleans, I think I'll be uh, presenting at a a conference there in September. Great. I'll have more in the show notes if anyone's interested for specific links. But I think that was pretty simple and straightforward. I'll be writing a letter to Reason and tell them to leave your headlines alone. (laughs) <laughs> all right <laughs> please yeah and tell them to give me a raise also of course all right balen thank you very much for this um it was it's been it was really great thanks thanks very much brian i right. appreciate it talk to you later bye now sure.
All right, let's mention a few things I rarely ever mention. You know, I do have a blog, and there's a link. <laughs> Jesus, I can't even talk. So my website is askbrian.com, A-S-K-B-R-Y-A-N, and um, all the tabs are there. It's You know, there's a link for the blog. There's a link for the podcast resources, which is a, basically an Amazon store, something called The Ferment. I talk briefly couple things that I ferment. There's a contact page. There's even a voicemail phone number you can call me. If you want to contribute a piece to the blog, please reach out and say hello. So I'm at askbrian.com, B-R-Y-A-N. So that's where you can get all the episodes and the associated links that we mention. You know, when I say go to the show notes, it's askbrian.com forward slash the podcast. That's where all the episodes are. What else do you need to know? I don't think you need to know anything. There's links there for ads. Also, there's a donate button. I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but you can just go ahead and send me money. That's fine. I I won't. I have no problem with that at all. I think the minimum is $1. So just send a dollar, and I'll send you a nice email.
That was Beat Down by Mr. Bitterness. You can find out more about him at mrbitterness.com. He's also mrbitterness on Twitter. Dude also has a podcast. Great guy, and I thank him for sharing the song. What else? Yeah, you know, typically my the show music is from a friend of mine, John, his band Vagrant Revival. I always try to include a, a link in there, uh, vagrantrevival.com. is his band, and he graciously donated a couple clips that I've used regularly on the show. Let's try one more ad before we go. What folks just like you all over the world are doing is going to askbrian.com forward slash the podcast. And they're clicking on the ads and buying stuff. And then also there's a donate button. And you just click on that and send me some money through PayPal. That's fine. I, I have no problem with that. It, I think the minimum is $1. Most people are sending like 10 or, you know, 10 10 bucks or 12 grand some somewhere in between there is is typical is common but the minimum is a dollar um i don't really have a subscription or anything no auto billing i don't think set up but i, I could do that if you like and just auto bill you for a couple hundred a month is, is not a problem so that's it askbrian.com or askbrian.com forward slash the podcast don't forget to check out the Squatty Potty that's on there. And everything you ever wanted to know about coconut oil is on there. What else? That's all I got today, folks. 